It is the morning show. I'm Kate Archer Kent. Wisconsin is home to about 6,000 dairy farms, more than any other state. Nearly 1.3 million cows and counting. And those figures from our state agriculture department, we take a deep dive into what rural means and how the land is changing. And you can be part of the discussion. Call in with a question. Share your views at 800-642-1234. Email ideas at wpr.org. Stephen Kahn is a history professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. New book is called The Lies of the Land, Seeing Rural America for What It Is and Isn't. Steve, welcome to the Ideas Network. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. This is a thrill. Good. You write about how Americans often talk about rural life using both the language of crisis and the language of myth. And you take particular issue with the word crisis. Why is that? Yeah. Well, I think over the last, uh, I don't know what it's been now, five, eight years, this is the word, if you look in the newspapers, that comes up repeatedly when we talk about what's going on in rural places. And I'm a historian, so I need to go back. And what I discovered is that, in fact, people have been talking about rural America in crisis every decade since probably the 1870s and and maybe even before that i didn't i didn't go all the way back and so if every if you could sort of look at every decade and somebody is talking about how rural america is in crisis i sort of was starting to scratch my head and think well well when was rural america therefore not in crisis and and therefore maybe that's not the right way for us to be talking about this in the first place why are you challenging these long-held views of rural America? Well, I think it starts. Uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get a little uh, autobiographical here. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a big city kid. I grew up in Philadelphia. I lived on the East Coast, and then I moved to Ohio. And now I live in a very small town, surrounded by uh, by corn and soybean fields. And I teach uh, in a in a slightly larger uh, town. Uh, also surrounded by soybean and cornfields. And so I guess with these two perspectives, I just didn't think that the conversation we were having about rural America was getting us anywhere. I didn't think it was very useful. And so I thought, well, is there a different way? Can I bring a different set of lenses uh, to look at all of this? Because what I was reading, what I was finding, just as I said, seemed to go round and round. It's about a crisis. It's about a crisis. It's about a crisis. And I just am not sure that's gotten us anywhere. So I thought I'd look into it myself. You bring up about um, some outside perspective. A friend of yours um, from China told you that um, Chinese people who come to the U.S. call our rural areas the big empty. And you yeah, say that yeah. that phrase stuck with you. What significance yeah. does does the big empty have? Yeah, I love that phrase. And I really, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 my colleague who gave it to me, I owe her a debt. I think one of the things that I was really struck by the first time I ever went to visit China, which was about 25 years ago, was going in between these Chinese cities, these big Chinese cities, through the Chinese countryside and realizing just how busy it all was. Uh, Whereas in this country, we associate being out in the country with being really not that you don't see anybody. There's there's nobody out there. It's all kind of empty. And I think that uh, that's part of the mythology or that 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 sort of underscores the mythology that we have about rural places, that they are empty, that they are somehow tranquil and they don't change a lot. And, and that's what we want to see when we go out there. It's not 
really true that they, they, they may be empty of people, but that doesn't mean they aren't empty in all kinds of other ways. Hmm. You know, I introduce you by counting the number of farms we have here in Wisconsin. Yeah. And I wonder, does that ignore other kinds of of rural places? Um, because I feel like, at least I do, have the, um, when I think of rural, I think of farms. Yep. So uh, it, this might not be the best way to start off a book, but I think the very first sentence in my book is, a book about rural America is a ridiculous idea. Uh, because as, you, as you're driving at here, there are all different kinds of rural places. Uh, rural places are farms. Yes, that's kind of what we think of, but they're also uh, mining areas and timber areas, which was, you know, folks who live up in the northern parts of Wisconsin are certainly uh, aware of all of that. Uh, they constitute desperately poor areas of the country. Uh, they, it's, it's where a majority of Indian reservations are found, right? Uh, they constitute some of the richest counties in the country, like Teton, Wisconsin, uh, Wyoming, uh, which claims to be the wealthiest county per capita in the United States. So, right, rural America is a vastly diverse place, but I do think that when we talk about it when we use the language we're projecting an image of family farm uh and that's sort of uh part of what i also wanted to deconstruct a little bit here was to get us to to see these places in in the in in a much more uh multiplicitous sort of way Re-examining depictions of rural America, Steve Kahn, our guide, history professor, author of the new book, The Lies of the Land. You can join in along the way. Your questions and comments are welcome. 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Steve, you say, you know, widespread views of rural life are often romanticized and depicted as ideal and healthy and, and simpler. Where do the romanticized views come from? Well, they come all the way back. They go all the way back to the 18th century. And I, I'm sure many readers, uh, I'm sorry, many of your listeners will recognize the phrase of Thomas Jefferson's when he talked about the United States as a, as a nation of yeoman farmers. Mm -hmm. Was Jefferson himself a yeoman farmer? Absolutely not. But he had a projection of what ought to be, that we should be a nation of land-owning, self-sufficient, agrarian people. And it's not clear that that was ever the case. But that fantasy, that, as I said, that mythology persisted. You find it persisted. It, it, you, you see it in writings across the 19th century, uh, in the 20th century, it gets reinforced in radio shows and television shows and articles in the Saturday Evening Post and things like this. It's really, uh, for I think a lot of urban and metropolitan Americans, rural America is a blank slate. Uh, and it's, a, it, it's onto which we can simply project what, what we wish rural America was really like. You know, um, the view being that rural America is nearly entirely white. Um, uh, who is left out of this rural America when you look at the, the people living in sparsely populated areas? Sure. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, rural America, again, depending on where you are in the country, uh, has always been home to African-Americans, to Native people, to uh, people uh, of Hispanic 
origins one way and another. Uh, and that's also still the case. Uh, one of the things that I, one of the ways in which this rural white mythology is perpetuated uh, in the popular culture is through country music. And one of the things I think you don't hear much uh, when you listen to country music are songs about uh, Central American slaughterhouse workers in Iowa. But those rural slaughterhouses in Iowa are staffed by people who are all speaking Spanish. And they tend, therefore, those sorts of people tend to get ignored as we project this image of kind of little house on the prairie uh, onto, uh, onto rural America. Miami University of Ohio history professor Steve Kahn's new book. It's called The Lies of the Land, putting rural America into sharper focus, what it means. Call in with a question. You can share your thoughts at 800-642-1234. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is the morning show. I'm Kate Archer Kent. Wisconsin is known as America's dairy land. Over 64,000 farms and roughly 14 million acres. That's from the state agriculture department. We explore attributes of rural Wisconsin and America and how this land is changing. You can be part of the discussion. Call in with a question. Share your thoughts. 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Steve Kahn is a history professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Book is called The Lies of the Land. Steve, we're going to turn to the um, Army Corps of Engineers. And one of your chapters really looks at the role of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in, in militarizing rural America. And then in 1970, we learn uh, Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson talked about the division was akin to a beaver because of the agency's, you know, rampant construction of dams. What has the role been of the Army Corps in rural parts of America? That was a great line from Senator Nelson. I was really pleased to have found that when I was doing my research. So let's imagine a map of the lower 48 states. And I think there isn't a single watershed in in the entire continental United States that hasn't been shaped, altered, affected in one way or another by the Army Corps of Engineers. The Army Corps of Engineers goes all the way back to 1774. It's actually the reason West Point was created very early in the 19th century, to produce engineers. And what they have done is to transform uh, the entire uh, uh, the, landscape of the nation through the management of uh, water and watersheds, one, as I said, one way and another. In the 19th century, canals. In the 20th century, dams. And so when we think about the way in which um, rural America is, is shaped by the federal government, uh, which I think is a really key piece of understanding how rural America operates, the Army Corps of Engineers is kind of exhibit A. Uh, this means uh, irrigation projects. It means um, uh, flood control projects so that people can live in certain areas which which they otherwise might not be able to live in. Um, it's it's a vast operation. It it is more or less unaccountable. The Army Corps of Engineers uh, I discovered, um, and and its influence has just been profound. 
What has its influence been on Native Americans? Well, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, and, and I'm going to simplify here, but in the 19th century, the U.S. Army cleared rural, uh, uh, cleared indigenous people out of the country uh, and, and created a reservation system. Between 1790 and about 1890, there were more than 1,600 military encounters between the U.S. Army and indigenous people of, of one degree or another. When the, when the Army Corps turns to then reshaping these spaces, um, Native Americans have often found themselves uh, either flooded out, and I tell the story of um, uh, the Kinzua Dam project, which was in sort of on the border between New York and Pennsylvania, in which the Seneca Nation found itself flooded out by a dam project that was built in the 1960s, or they find themselves alternately with water diverted from where they uh, from where they're now residing because the Army has the Army Corps has moved the water in a different direction. So Native Americans continued to be uh, shaped adversely by the Army and the Army Corps of Engineers, even though the military uh, conflicts were officially over. Um, turning to military installations, you cite Camp Hood, Texas, as an example of a military installation transforming a rural area. What happens to rural communities when they're made into military towns? Yeah, uh, two things. Uh, or let's say it goes in two directions. At a place like uh, Camp Fort Hood in, in Texas, this was a, a kind of scrubby part of Texas uh, in, as, as late as the 1930s. World War II breaks out. The Army decides it needs a big Army base there. So the first thing that happens are all the ranchers and farmers are cleared off the land, uh, eminent domain. And then... Um, the, the, the land is is used for training. It's used for ordnance testing. It's at Fort Hood in particular, they, they, they like to roll tanks. Uh, so the landscape itself and the environment itself is totally chewed up. But it's an enormous base now with staff and soldiers who are rotating in and out. So, so let's say the, um, the ecology of local businesses changes entirely. Now it's pizza shops and used car dealerships and strip joints. Uh, which have replaced whatever used to be there before the army showed up. The other thing that happens, and I tell the story somewhat closer to Wisconsin of an Air Force base on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, when the army comes in, or in this case it was the Air Force, uh, when the military comes in, um, it transforms, as I've just said, but in that case, the base closed in the mid-1990s, and that was like an economic implosion for Marquette County Michigan, uh, from which it really still hasn't recovered. So when when rural communities become dependent on that kind of military spending, when the spending goes away, they're left with uh, with real, real economic problems. You called um, K.I. Sawyer Air Base um, the, the nickname Little Detroit. Can you explain yeah. how rural blight occurred in the UP after after Sawyer closed? Sure. Well, when Sawyer closed and it's and it was a function, it, there, there were lots of base closings that were happening at the end of the Cold War. Sawyer was one of those. Uh, so all the staff and personnel leave. All of the businesses that uh, service that base leave. Uh, 
schools begin to close, they can't make their budgets uh, because the, there are no more kids and there's no more tax revenue. And what this left, therefore, by the end of the 1990s was abandonment uh, and people who were still living there, but living below the poverty line uh, because they couldn't they didn't really have any options for getting out. So people started to refer to the area around Sawyer as Little Detroit uh, because of the abandonment that was just visible. These these, you know, uh, small houses that used to have uh, Air Force personnel or or whatnot uh, were, were all just now empty. And and it's I think you see that in a number of places where where the military came and then the military left. We dig into um, depictions of rural America. Steve Kahn is here, history professor, author of the new book, The Lies of the Land. You can join in with your questions, your perspectives, 800-642-1234. Let's go to Ruth and Ladysmith. Ruth, hi. Hi. I'm wondering why all the um, subsidies are going to these corporate uh, government-funded farms and not to the hands of the back-breaking family farms. So many family farms have had to close because they do not get the same milk price per 100 pounds of milk that they produce that the big corporate um, government-funded farms get. Ruth, thank you. A little bit difficult to hear, Steve, but um, wanting to have you contrast the um, subsidies of corporate-funded farms versus what is happening on smaller family farms here in Wisconsin yeah. and elsewhere. So thank you for that question, Ruth. Um, the, I, I think there are two answers to it. The, the, the most immediate answer is that um, the agriculture department starting in the 1950s under President Eisenhower, but then really accelerating in the 1970s under uh, the agricultural department of President Nixon, um, absolutely wanted to go to, for, for agriculture to become big and increasingly industrial scale. Uh, the agriculture, some, some listeners may remember the agriculture secretary under Nixon was a guy named Earl Butts. And um, his favorite phrase when he would give speeches was get big or go out of business. Uh, so he had no use for small scale family style farms. And so ag policy under the Nixon administration was all designed to make agriculture bigger and bigger and bigger and therefore squeezing out smaller and smaller producers. The second answer to the question is that, uh, in fact, the forces that affect agriculture, you know, sort of making it, squeezing family farms, have been at work for a long time. International Harvester, uh, which again, m many listeners are, are very familiar with, launched an ad campaign in the 1920s where they, where they said, every farm a factory. So the idea that what we really wanted to do was to make agricultural production just as large scale, just as efficient, if that's the right word, as as you know, Ford motor cars or or what have you, has been going on for over a hundred years in this country. And small scale, especially diversified farms, you know, a farm that would grow corn and do dairy, uh, they got squeezed out. And that squeeze, you know, people started talking about that as early as the 1940s and 50s. And so that's where you hear like the rise of agribusiness and sure. mass-produced crops, where you know that's right. Yeah. 
they, these kind of monoculture situations are relatively new. And mm. certainly, in, you know, like in the history of agriculture, they're, they're absolutely new, that, that you would just have 2,000 acres of a single crop. That's really new. But it is all about federal policy that begins uh, under Eisenhower and, as I said, accelerates under Richard Nixon. Historian Steve Kahn challenging the notion of a rural America in crisis new book called The Lies of the Land. And you can join the discussion about rural places. Ask a question, share your perspectives at any point. Call in at 800-642-1234. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show here on the Ideas Network. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. Hundreds of thousands of jobs are connected to agriculture in Wisconsin, according to state figures. We learn about big forces shaping rural areas, effects on Wisconsin's landscape. Steve Kahn is a professor of history at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. New book is called The Lies of the Land. Call in with a question. Share your views. 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Steve, we heard from Rich and Rhinelander, who says that rural areas are often masked by the larger metro areas nearby. Like people think of Chicago when thinking of Illinois or they think of New York City and rather than focus on the entire population of the state of New York. What then happens to that perception when we're totally focused on those huge metro areas? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think the traffic goes both ways. I think that while, and I know this from doing my research, that there is a feeling on the part of a lot of folks that all of the attention goes to New York City or or Chicago. Uh, politically, it is still the case that rural voters are overrepresented both at the state level in almost every state and then, of course, at the national level through the Electoral College and the Senate and, and so on and so forth. So so on the one hand, yeah, it may be that our sitcoms are now largely set in New York City, but in our politics, rural uh, areas are are overrepresented. Uh, it's true in Pennsylvania. It's true in Illinois. It's uh, it's true in lots and lots of states. Uh, as I said, in addition to to our national politics as well. Mary uh, Mary Lisa from Shano wants to go deeper on that and saying that you know they live in a rural area that is very red. Mary Lisa wants to know why farmers and people in rural areas often vote Republican and ask how this loyalty to the Republican Party is affecting rural areas. Yeah. Wow. If I had an answer to that question, because <laughs> I do think it's in some ways the, the $60,000 question for, for politics. So I think that there are um, a couple of things at play, at least that I have seen. I think since the 1980s, uh, especially with the, the Reagan revolution, the suspicion of the mistrust of the federal government has really resonated for uh, for rural voters, and I think that was that was a kind of deliberate strategy on the part of the Republican Party to pit uh, rural people against the government. 
The irony here, of course, is that the federal government um, has been essential to, to, to what we mean by the development of rural America from the very, very beginning. So let me give you one example. Uh, or let's a, a, a kind of a comparison here. In the 1930s, when the Great Depression begins and Franklin Roosevelt takes office, fewer than 10% of rural households had electricity. By 1960, over 90% of rural households had electricity, and that's all due to the New Deal's rural electrification programs. Okay, fast forward, and what you hear nowadays is that rural America has been cut off from access to high-speed internet, and and then everything that descends from that, you know, information, but also uh, its relationship to jobs and, and whatnot. Well, there have been efforts to try to get the federal government to initiate a kind of rural internet program that would bring uh, high-speed internet to rural areas that has staunchly been resisted by Republicans over the last decade or so. So when rural voters vote for uh, Republican representatives who then turn around and, and don't want to do the things, say, that we did in the New Deal, there is a kind of irony here. And I do think rural people have suffered as a consequence. When you examine federal subsidies, New Deal, the the broadband infrastructure of the now, um, I want to also turn to the Farm Bill and, you know, this package of legislation that's for renewal by Congress this year. Um, Legislation originally passed in 1973 now contains ag subsidies, money for food stamps, disaster relief. How important is the Farm Bill for American farmers and for uh, rural you know, um, rural parts of America. Well, so let me start by saying that, you know, when I when I talked about Earl Butts and the Nixon administration, that first farm bill you just referenced, 1973, kind of enshrined many of the things that uh, that your caller Ruth was upset about. So in some ways, 50 years after the fact, uh, we're still dealing with the, let's call it the architecture of ag policy that got set uh, in 1973. I, I, I guess I would start your, answering your question, Kate, by saying the Farm Bill affects every single one of us, because what it really does is uh, create the framework for what our food systems are going to be. And I think lots of authors have explored uh, the way in which our food system, if we think of it as a whole, um, is pretty profoundly broken. Uh, But I think what has happened uh, since 1973 is that the, the Farm Bill, especially the ag part of the Farm Bill, is really dominated by corporate interests, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, companies like uh, Monsanto. Well, I guess Monsanto doesn't exist anymore, but it's been swallowed up by something else. Uh, but big ag producers, uh, the uh, the seed companies and the and the fertilizer companies that are that are associated with all of this. And it has a profound impact most immediately on producers. But it has also pretty significant consequences for those of us who have to eat each day. Is it viewed in smaller towns as a government subsidy or how is it viewed? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I, I'm not a journalist. Uh, so, like, you know, I like I like to prefer people who are way in the past and, and I can get a handle on that. But my suspicion is that uh, and just from the little bit that I've seen, uh, there are there are lots of uh, recipients of ag subsidies 
who do not see this as some kind of a subsidy. They mm. see it as necessary or that they deserve it or that it's a vital national interest and therefore it's not really a subsidy like people on welfare, let's say, which is the kind of uh, uh, nasty comparison that often gets made. So they, and, and, and this, I think, has often been true in, in rural places. Uh, one of the interesting little studies I found, and it was from the 1960s, I think, uh, North Dakota had the highest percentage of residents on some kind of New Deal relief program uh, during the 1930s. By the 1950s and 60s, nobody would acknowledge that in mm. North Dakota. It was as if this collective amnesia about the New Deal had simply descended like a fog over the state. And I thought that was really interesting as, as, as a, a reflection of how people think about their relationship to these federal subsidies. Steve Kahn with us, history professor, Miami University of Ohio, author of the new book, The Lies of the Land, as we look at depictions of rural America, how it's shaped. You can join in the conversation. Call in with a question or comments, 800-642-1234. Steve, you say three factors have contributed to manufacturers moving into the uh, South and the Midwest, um, land, labor, lifestyle. Can you elaborate on what yeah. you know, drew them away from urban areas? So one of the things I think we have to recognize is that the countryside, which we think of as pastoral and and and, and so forth and, and full of farms, is really the site of American manufacturing now. And that was a process moving factories out of big cities into rural places that sort of started in the 30s. It accelerated during the Second World War, and then it really picked up pace in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So there are a couple of things that these uh, these factories are looking for. They're looking for cheap land because then they can build uh, much larger manufacturing plants, usually all on one floor. Um, they're looking for uh, non-unionized labor. Uh, when an auto uh, uh, maker moves out of Detroit uh, to build, let's say, in rural Tennessee, they're hoping that the UAW isn't going to come after them. Uh, and then they sell the idea that somehow a factory out in the country is going to be, well, it's not going to be dirty. It's not going to be messy or noisy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take on all of those mythic rural attributes that uh, that we believe rural America ought to have. And so this, you know, again, in the 50s and 60s, as this was all being promoted, um, this is the kind of language that I kept hearing in my sources. You also um, do a little case study on Honda and its decision to locate its engine plant um, in a rural area, specifically Ohio. Um, what did, what have you seen out of um, companies like Honda who are, you know, building plants in, in these spaces? Yeah, so Honda builds its first uh, manufacturing plant in a what was then a small town called Marysville, Ohio. And it, it's exactly uh, an example of, of what I was just discussing. It does not want unionized labor at all. And it's very, the 
company leaders are very explicit about this. And state officials in Ohio, this is in the late 70s, uh, are also very explicit that, you know, if you get your workers from the countryside, they're not going to give you any trouble. They're not going to unionize. They're not going to even try to unionize. And this is very attractive to Honda. Then what Honda does after it opens its Marysville plant is to create like a whole constellation of supplier plants mm -hmm. also in really tiny towns so that in fact you can drive through rural ohio and and come across these uh, uh satellites that are connected to the big assembly plant in marysville so the engines are all uh, made in a town called Anna, Ohio, uh, in the western part of the state. It's a town that has 1,300 people in it. More people work at that plant each day than actually live in that town. And I think that's become more and more common across a lot of rural America, especially as the auto industry left the upper Midwest, uh, Detroit, Cleveland, uh, even parts of Wisconsin, and followed uh, I-75 and I-65 south into places like Tennessee and Alabama. Here in Wisconsin, we've had this multi-year saga with electronics giant Foxconn um, has left Mount Pleasant 12,000 jobs shy of what was promised by the manufacturer. What could help communities avoid this dependence on, on single large employers? So, yeah, it's, it becomes a, a, a really interesting dance. Rural communities want to compete to get these kinds of plants in their uh, in their town. They throw all kinds of goodies uh, at these companies. But of course, other communities are doing the same thing in this competition. And therefore, it becomes a kind of race to the bottom. How many uh, years of property tax rebates are we going to give you? How much free water are we going to provide from the uh, from our municipal water system. I think that those strategies of economic development work less often than people believe that they do. And I think the, uh, you know, I'm not an economic development specialist by any means, but I think sort of chasing that, that big white whale of a big manufacturing plant carries at least as many risks and, and potential pitfalls as it does success. Miami University of Ohio history professor Steve Kahn's new book, it's called The Lies of the Land, challenging us to rethink what rural means. And there's room to talk. Call in with a question. You can share your thoughts along the way. 800-642-1234. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show on the Ideas Network. It is The Morning Show. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. We dig into what rural means and the history of these sparsely populated areas in Wisconsin and across the nation. Historian Steve Kahn's book is called The Lies of the Land. Call in with a question. You can share what's on your mind. 800-642-1234. Email ideas at WPR.org. Steve, turning to the suburbs established after World War II, built almost entirely on once rural farmland, how did the rise of suburbs transform our rural spaces? Yeah, I think when we talk about the so-called disappearance of the rural of rural areas in, in certain parts of the country, what we have to recognize is that they, they simply became suburban developments. And I was struck that um, when when people have talked about the suburbs, they, they really have ignored this dimension of it, which is to say that, yeah, 
uh, all of these uh, big developments get built uh, and still get built on farmland, which means, therefore, that rural communities uh, built around agriculture are displaced or disturbed or in other uh, distorted one way or another. Uh, often farmers sell up and they go someplace else. Uh, often they get chased out. Um, you know, part of what suburbanites bring is this mythical notion of the pastoral. And then when they discover that it's noisy and dirty and smelly, they go to court to try to close down the remaining farms that are in this area that they they like to look at, but they didn't really want to live next to. And I have a couple of I found a couple of really funny court cases uh, where sub new suburbanites uh, actually take these farmers to court and shut them down. Uh, so I think that the rural dimension of suburban development is something we've really ignored. And what it did to rural and has done to rural communities uh, is a really important story that I tried to tell. I think it's also interesting how you say that, you know, that there are these fights over sewers and schools and services, um, you know, it, but it's also the similar fights that occur in urban areas that these, these two areas are, are not not that far apart. Um, can you can you talk a bit no. about that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I think what you what you need to recognize, or at least that I came to recognize, is that all of the economic forces that that affect us all, affect rural people, uh, perhaps in different ways, but but they're not separate and apart from any of this. So uh, when we think about uh, a rural area that's, that's maybe growing, uh, this is going to put a strain on everything from the sewers to the schools. And then that makes uh, uh, difficult choices for people who live there. Do we raise our taxes? Because the high school is no longer big enough for all the kids who are now here. But taxes are, uh, we, we don't like to raise taxes uh, much of the time. Uh, do we build a water treatment plant or do we continue simply using uh, septic tanks and uh, well water? Uh, right, and, and so I think these fights happen in every community. The, the flavors of those fights might be a little different, but they're essentially the same. You have such an interesting contrast in the rise of rural shopping, and you're looking at retail chains like Pennies and Woolworths in the early 20th century, and then the the contrast with Dollar General in, in Walmart in recent decades. Um, how important were these early dollar stores in the development of rural retail? Uh, I, I think that was one of the really interesting things that I discovered. When we think about Main Street in some small town in Nebraska, and we think about a mom and pop shop there, um, in fact, that that was really almost never true. What what you had on Main Street was a Woolworths or a Pennies, which was a nationally uh, built chain of retail operations almost exclusively before the Second World War in small towns and agricultural communities, so that rural shoppers were uh, were already connected to national markets of, of consumer goods through Pennies and, and Woolworths. Uh, the busiest day of the week for many of these stores was Saturday, when all the farm families came in to do their shopping. But they were buying things that were manufactured in Chicago or Philadelphia, or in many cases, London. You you know, you, you were getting the world's goods brought to you through these chains. In the post-Second World War period, those, you know, the Woolworths and, on Main Street all closed, or almost all of them closed, and they've been replaced with the big box retailers like Walmart 
And then I was really fascinated by Dollar General because mm. there are, you know, we, we all know Walmart. Uh, we know that story. There may be 3,500 Walmarts around the country. There are probably $18,000 generals. And they exist almost exclusively in rural communities. And I would argue that they are not doing the kind of service to those communities that, say, the old Woolworths uh, used to. They, they don't sponsor the Little League team. They aren't a place where you go to have a, a, a lunch at the lunch counter and so on and so forth. It's sort of bottom of the barrel, cheap as possible kind of retail. Mm. Toward the end of your book, you describe American cities as often greener than our country's rural areas. And I mean, I found that really eye opening. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, I think when we think about uh, cities, we, we, we tend to think in a kind of old way about, you know, the, the, the big polluting factories. So it's, you know, the steel mills of Pittsburgh or, or whatever it happens to be. But now I think when we are so focused on, as we ought to be, on, on carbon and, and uh, energy usage, cities are more efficient energy users than rural areas are. Uh, you have to drive less if you have to drive at all. Uh, the, the per capita energy usage in New York City is far lower than it is in any rural community in the country. So if we are going to get serious about addressing uh, the climate crisis, uh, we're going to have to recognize that higher density living is more efficient in terms of energy usage, carbon uh, uh, and, and other greenhouse gases. Hmm. I know you like as a historian to, uh, <laughs> to stay in your lane in the past, but how should we change the way we talk about rural America? How can we have more productive conversations about the future of rural America? Well, I think one of the things I've really been struck by is that if we want to really think seriously about revitalizing certain parts of rural America, and again, as I said at the outset, lots of different kinds of rural, uh, I think what we want to start to do is to reinvest in the small cities and even small towns, because I think those, and, and you know this in Wisconsin, I know this in Ohio, you drive through uh, some of these small towns and, and, and they're struggling. But I think that in terms of um, building uh, an economic base, in terms of building social connections and, and sense of community, reinvesting in, in what amounts to the urban areas of rural America is really critical. And I think the kind of low density, very dispersed living that some people have gotten accustomed to is something we ought to move away from. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate thank the conversation. Thank you for having me. Yes. This was fabulous. Thank you so much. Steve Kahn is a history professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and author of the new book called The Lies of the Land, Seeing Rural America for What It Is and Isn't. You can catch all of our programs online. Visit our program page to stream or download more programs from The Morning Show. Visit WPR.org mornings. I'm Kate Archer-Kent. You're listening to The Morning Show here on the Ideas Network.